I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder. The good and the not so good. The successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. This is a great episode. My guest for today is Jennifer Rowland, and what a great time we had doing this interview. Jennifer is the co-author of The Inside Scoop on Eating Disorder Recovery, and we talk about Jennifer's experience with orthorexia, suicidal ideation, exercise addiction. We also talk about how her life is now without the eating disorder. It is full, it is rich, it is satisfying. So it's a really wonderful message. We also joke a little bit about the fact that I know nothing about social media. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to learn everybody. It's getting there. All right. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. Here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I am thrilled to announce our guest for today, Jennifer Rowland. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you on the show. So Jennifer is a therapist and she is the founder of the Eating Disorder Center in Rockville, Maryland. And so, and the, uh, I don't know why I just stopped at that. She's the co-author of books and she's on social media, but I'm going to let Jennifer tell the listeners a little bit about Jen, who you are, um, what you're doing and what you'd like listeners to know about yourself. Sure. So like you said, I'm an eating disorder therapist, and I also have my own history of lived experience from an eating disorder, PTSD, depression, and anxiety. And all of that is what really inspired my passion for this work and for helping other people to find the same freedom and peace with food in their bodies that I did. As you mentioned, I founded the Eating Disorder Center, which is an outpatient therapy and coaching practice that as of right now, I want to say it's about 10 associates of therapists and coaches, and we work in a bunch of different states. So that's really cool. I also write and speak about eating disorders because I'm really passionate about raising awareness about eating disorders, health at every size, weight stigma. So I've spoken on various media outlets and television, as well as conferences and colleges. And then I have written quite a bit on the Huffington Post and Psychology Today, as well as some other publications. And what I'm most excited about in terms of my writing career is myself and my very good friend, Dr. Colleen Reichman, co-authored a book called The Inside Scoop on Eating Disorder Recovery, which is coming out with Routledge Publishing in April. So I'm super pumped about that. And then beyond that, I would just say quickly, um, I'm an outgoing introvert. I am a new um, plant enthusiast and I really enjoy colorful coffee as well as donuts and ice cream. So that's my whole, <laughs> gave you everything about me. I love the way you described everything. Fantastic. You know, one thing that I'm really excited about, and I, I would love for you to talk a little bit about the book coming out because I I have not read it because it hasn't been released yet, but I looked it up and I looked at the table of contents and all the things that you're talking about and the cover is fantastic. So 
What would you like listeners to know about your book? Because I think books that are written from recovered people have a special essence to them that authors of books are phenomenal. And I say this in every podcast, I'm not saying you have to have been recovered to understand it, but tell me, tell me what you want listeners to know about this book. So this book is the book that I really wish that I had had when I was first diagnosed with an eating disorder. I remember walking into Barnes and Nobles, there really weren't that many options. And I picked up one, which was a good book. However, it did not include certain elements that were really important to my recovery. And I think about how much time and energy I might've saved had someone early in recovery been like, hey, this is health at every size. This is body diversity. This is fat positivity. Here's how trauma and eating disorders can interplay. Here's more about orthorexia. By the way, you have some tendencies of that too. So each chapter is really broken down different recovery topics that are going to be really helpful in moving the needle forward. And like you said, it's written from the perspective of two therapists who've recovered. And then we have a whole chapter on fat positivity with guest essays in larger bodies talking about their experiences in eating disorder treatment and recovery. So we touch on a load of topics, like I said, including trauma, orthorexia, binge eating disorder, anorexia, weight stigma, um, friends and family. So we really, each chapter, like I said, is covering a different topic. And we saw this as a kind of a cool how-to like insider's guide, which is why we called it the inside scoop to recovery. I think it's a fantastic book. And I, like you, wish there were books like that when I was going through my experience. You know, Jennifer, I listened to some of your other interviews uh, before we did this podcast, and it's fascinating. You and I have a lot of similarities. And um, th there were just things that I, that I was like, oh my gosh, this is so similar. Like you and I both started, I started my eating disorder when I was 19, which you and I are actually kind of considered late bloomers to the, the world of eating disorders. Um, I lived 30 minutes away from my parents' house in college when, like, as you did. And there was one other thing, and I know this is just going way off topic, but it was just like, I thought, oh my gosh, I, it was exactly the same. You referenced, uh, you were on a, like a road trip with your mom and you were crying because you were so sad. And I know my parents tried everything they could to bring joy to my life. When I was in my eating disorder, I couldn't find it. And my mom took me to Nantucket overnight. She thought maybe that will help. And I remember sitting on the ferry crying, looking at other kids my age. At this point, I was probably 20. I was well, very deep into the eating disorder. And I was crying because I had never been so sad. I'd never been so depressed. And I was looking at these other college kids and I was like, how do they do this? How do they do this thing called life. I think the reason why I'm bringing up those similarities is I feel like from, from the little that I know of you, so please don't think I'm making these, I don't want to make these large assumptions. You have a very full, very rich life now. You have a powerful voice. You are out there sharing your message, similar to myself. I know this is a vague question and very broad, but how did you get there? <laughs> Here's the million dollar question, Jennifer. How did you get there? I talk about how I did all the time. Speak to your journey. Yeah, it's a great question. And it's cool to hear the similarities. I think for people with eating disorders, everyone is unique and no two stories are the same, but there can be these certain common threads and experiences, which I find really interesting. Um, in terms of how I got there, if I were to kind of boil it down and simplify it a little bit, I recognized that I had a problem pretty early on, although you know, of course, I felt like I wasn't sick enough because I wasn't super emaciated. People weren't, I had lost a significant amount of weight, but people weren't stopping me on the street. People weren't concerned about me. People told me I looked great and thought I was so like, quote unquote, healthy now. Um, but I 
reached out to somebody on Facebook who had recovered and she encouraged me to reach out for professional help. So I sought help from a dietitian, an eating disorder dietitian and an eating disorder therapist. And I think they both helped me a lot. I know the therapist talked to me a lot about self-compassion, which was super helpful because I was a little bit type A, hard on myself, um, very anxious, and all of that had kind of played into my eating disorder. So working on my relationship to myself was really helpful, as well as working through some of the underlying trauma that had contributed as well. However, I will say that my therapist at the time was not health at every size informed and pretty the opposite. And at the time, I think that was reassuring to my eating disorder, but I would later learn that that did far more harm than good. So ultimately I saw, you know, a few different providers who were outpatient within the eating disorder space. I will say that one of the first providers suggested I go to a higher level of care, but I was very stubborn and that scared me enough to where I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get better because I absolutely don't want to be sent to residential. So I had a lot of motivation, but I think as we know in recovery, motivation can really wax and wane. So, you know, there were definitely long periods in my recovery where I said, screw it. Like, I don't want to get better anymore. I'll keep seeing my team, but I don't want to follow this meal plan. I'm depressed. I don't care. So I want to point that out because I know a lot of folks struggle with that and think that there's no hope for them, but then there were little turning points for me. And I think something that was really, really crucial in my recovery, which plays into my life now, was finding things and purposes outside of myself and building relationships because my eating disorder, which took on a few different presentations, um, really isolated me from other people. And it made me completely zoned in on food, weight, my body and exercise. And so I started to gradually expand my world and my hobbies, interests, relationships. And I think recognizing too, that I wanted to be a therapist one day. And I realized, you know, in order, I wanted to be a therapist and be in a good place to be a therapist. So that was also a big motivator for me. But I think, you know, again, something I noticed in my own recovery journey was when I was putting in the work of recovery, but not also working on expanding my life, that's when motivation would kind of fall to the wayside and things became more challenging. And I think now where I'm at in my life is completely worlds different from where I was before, where at the depths of my eating disorder, my world was incredibly small. I was very lonely. I didn't want to live a lot of the time. And now, you know, I'm engaged to somebody who's incredible. I have good relationships. I have a career that I am so passionate about. Um, and I think I really found my voice and worked through a lot of the things that were contributing to my need to use the eating disorder. Um, of course, no one's perfect and it's not, I'm going to be a work in progress in terms of, you know, trauma work and, and all of that. But I think, yeah, I'm at the place in my life where I feel like I no longer need to use or rely on eating disorder behaviors in order to cope. And that is a very freeing feeling. Um, so yeah, it was a winding road, um, difficult at times, but ultimately I was able to come out the other side. And now I'm so passionate about sharing the message of recovery with everybody. There's two things I want to point out. One and this is what I always say to the clients, especially, um, well, I'm going to take away the especially part, but this is what I always say to clients. Imagine all the time and passion you're putting into your eating disorder, the behaviors, the thoughts, the planning things out. Imagine what you can do with that passion and time when you're using it to, when I say better yourself, I don't mean like get your resume better, like, but better yourself from the inside out. Because when you're in the eating disorder, you're harming yourself from the inside out, right? Like that passion. And that's often what happens when people are recovered. By the way, with anything, if you notice how much time you're spending on something, it is really powerful to say, wow, what else would I do with that time? I don't know if you have anything to add to that. You might not or. 
Yeah. So I a hundred percent relate to that. And I've had people ask me before, how do you have such a successful business? And to be clear, life is about so much more than your business. Like I love what I do. I'm so passionate about it, but I'm also really passionate about work-life balance, you know? So I don't want to say that that's what's most important because it's not. However, I took, like you said, a lot of my energy and brain space and threw it into an eating disorder. And now my brain has so much more space and I have so much more energy that I'm able to do all of the things that are so meaningful and important to me. And it doesn't feel like a chore or draining or difficult because I lived with an eating disorder, which was far more draining and difficult and exhausting than really anything else that I've experienced. The other thing I wanted to touch on, and we often talk about this, which is in the eating disorder, there is tremendous isolation. There is doing behaviors in secret, all these things. I'm wondering from your perspective, because, um, and I'm a little embarrassed to admit, I don't know a lot about social media, Jennifer. So I know, I know you're big on social media. I'm not totally sure because it's not my thing. I apologize. But are you getting people reaching out to you where because of the pandemic, there's like a built-in isolation. There's a built-in, you know, being able to get away with behaviors. Are you noticing anything different or in your social media or in your blogs, things like that? Are you are you talking about things differently? Because, you know, I, I've had to bring on additional therapists to work at my center since the pandemic has started. So what are you noticing? Yeah, so we've noticed the same thing. And I think it's across the board where there's been an even larger outcry of people reaching out for help. I think a lot of the distractions of going to work, going to social events, whatever was happening in your life are gone. And so people are really being forced to sit with themselves and to sit with the eating disorder, which is a very excruciating place to be. So we've definitely noticed a larger volume of reach outs, bringing on more team members. And I think in general, for people with eating disorders and you know comorbid depression as well, it's an incredibly tough time. And like you said, I think there's isolation, uncertainty, all of those things eating disorders really thrive on. Do you feel that, well, let me ask this a different way. Do you ever get triggered being in the field? I'll, I'll say something about that. You said something that I also do. I do a lot of talks at colleges. And when I go and do these talks, I say to them, the first thing I say is, I wish I were sitting where you are right now because I don't remember college. And it wasn't because I was partying and it wasn't because I was you know, out late doing this. It's because I was in my eating disorder the entire time. I don't get triggered when I go to college, but I definitely get a feeling in my chest. Sometimes I can feel tears in my eyes because I actually feel sadness for the college woman that I was going through it at that time. So I don't know if, if, if you get triggered, if you get memories like this, what, what has your experience been? Yeah. So first off, so much compassion for that, because I know it's so tough to grieve the loss of memories that maybe you never had the chance to have. For me, I don't get triggered by this work. I will say that sometimes I find myself remembering things that I completely forgot about. So for instance, if a client is struggling with using measuring cups for food, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. There was like a long period of time in my eating disorder where I couldn't eat things without measuring them all out, right? And that's so far gone now. I don't even think about it. I forgot that I ever did that. So little things like that, I might be like, oh yeah, I remember like that's something I struggled with too. But I don't, I don't find myself getting, getting triggered by it. What do you feel motivated you? to recover. I mean, it's easy to sit back now, now that you have this full life, this passion, this career, this connection to self. You and I, or anyone else that's been on the show that's recovered, did not have this, these visions. What motivated you? I think the first motivation was, as cliche as it is, I was sick and tired of being sick and tired, where I remember, and similar to what you just mentioned with the trip that I took 
um, to New York. I also remember just like sitting on the couch, maybe around that weekend at my parents' house crying. And I had maybe experienced what I would now look back and consider to be small, um, more minor bouts of depression when I was younger, but nothing really significant. And so this was the first time that I really felt like a pretty deep depression. And I was like, I'm terrified of recovery. I am terrified of my body changing, but I have to try it because I am miserable and I don't want to live like this. Like it is awful. So that was the first thing I would say that really motivated me. What do you say to the client that's sitting with you that says, I'm not sick and tired of being sick and tired. I actually feel the best I've ever felt. Yeah. And I think what I would say to them is that's really, that's really interesting. So tell me what brought you here today? What brought you to my office? Right. Because, and maybe it's, you know what, my husband forced me to come here, my mom, but it's like, if you're in my office, there's a part of you, even if it's 1%, even if it's, I'm here because I don't want my husband to divorce me. So that's motivation, right. That wants to get better. Cause Totally, I had periods in my eating disorder where I thought I'm on top of the world, especially in quasi recovery. I was like, everything is fine. I'm quote unquote high functioning. Like, not to mention that I had to send my sandwich back at the restaurant because they accidentally, you know, put some condiment on there that I'm scared of. But like, I'm functional. Like, people don't know. And I think that's a hard stage too, right? Where you're in that kind of quasi recovery place. But again, the eating disorder was sucking away these small pieces of my happiness. I just couldn't fully see it at the time. I think I think the in between. It's funny we all have terms for it. You call it the quasi recovery. I think I call it the in between for my using you know from my own experience. I think for different reasons, all stages of recovery are grueling, and and I I tell my clients that. You know, I have clients that, that come to me and they say, I'm supposed to be feeling better. People said I'd be feeling better if I do this work. And I'm like, oh, yeah, not yet. <laughs> it's not like that. And I remember when I was at my sickest, there were there was discomfort and and terrible, you know, thoughts at that stage. Then I was, when I was in the in-between stage, I didn't belong anywhere and I felt like I was drifting and I would be happy that I was not doing a behavior and then mad at myself for not doing a behavior. Like every single stage has its own challenges. And that's just what I was thinking of. I don't know if you have anything to add to that or. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think actually that between stage or quasi-recovery stage can be incredibly difficult because like you said, it's that limbo land of people feeling like, well, I'm somewhat better and I feel a little more free. So maybe I'm not quote unquote that sick, or maybe I don't need to continue, but then there's that limitation in your life. So I actually think that stage can be hard, but yes, we need to prepare people that it's going to feel bad before things eventually start to feel better. And I also, and, and I think I've said this before on the podcast, if I have a client who walks in and says, I actually feel great, like don't even, nope, don't want to give it up. And then they use the example that you use, say, well, my husband said, or my partner said, if I don't come in, then they will divorce me. And that's where my hook is. And I say, okay, so this relationship, has a little bit more importance than the eating disorder. I don't care how small it is. That's huge. And I grasp on that because there are some behaviors and some outcomes that are egocentric, which is one of the reasons the entire, the entire disorder is not ego dystonic. It's not always uncomfortable. And by the way, that's whatever eating disorder you're struggling with. If it's anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, you know, OSFED, there are some behaviors that feel good. And that makes it really, really challenging. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think it's the paradox or the contrast between, for instance, most people, and occasionally you see otherwise, but most people, for instance, who are depressed say, I want to feel better. I don't want to feel like this because um, it's often very ego dystonic. 
But yes, with eating disorders, especially when there's restriction involved, which is often praised, there can be this desire both of wanting to get rid of it, but feeling like it's your best friend and wanting to cling on to it at the same time. Yeah, it's it's a powerful conundrum if I could use such an expression, right? It's really, really challenging. I, like you, I, I want to sing from the rooftops about about my eating disorder. And I don't mean about the behaviors and what I have, but about the emotional struggles that I went through, because I think that's more important to talk about. By the way, everybody knows behaviors, blah, 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 right? We all know it. We've heard it. We can look it up. But it's it's not often that we talk about what's happening underneath, which is the function of the behavior. I want to talk from the rooftops about being recovered and what it's like and all these things. I also think I just like to talk a lot. What was it for you, Jennifer, that made you say, I want to do all these things because I I am I am incredibly proud of my recovery. I'm proud of also every client that walks through my door, no matter how long their processes. So what, what made it for you that you wanted to be so vocal about it? Absolutely. And I echo that in terms of being proud of both where I am and my clients, like you said, no matter how long or how winding their recovery journey is. For me, it was honestly completely unintentional, which might surprise some people. I went to graduate school deciding that I wanted to be a therapist never thought that I would specialize in eating disorders. It just didn't really, wasn't something that I was thinking that I would do. And I don't remember the exact timeline, but I want to say I had graduated from my graduate program in which during that time I had been thinking more about eating disorders, working with certain clients who had eating disorders, like gravitating towards them, my practicum. And I'm pretty sure where it first started was I got very annoyed and frustrated because I saw something about clean eating, like, because this was a big clean eating thing at that time. And so I wrote an article just like ranting about how much I can't stand the term clean eating and why it's so dumb and harmful and does it make any sense. And I was like, I want to get this out there. So I got it published in a really small online journal. And from there, I kind of caught the writing bug and the speaking bug and was like, I I couldn't unsee it because I had done all this work through my recovery journey of calling out diet culture and unlearning, you know, elements of fat phobia and all of that. So I just found that I couldn't not call out harm when I saw it. And that kind of became, you know, my interest, specialty and my career. So completely accidentally. Can you speak to and also explain for listeners who don't know what the... term, excuse me, I couldn't say the word. I don't know if everybody knows what orthorexia is. And when you said you saw an article about clean eating, it reminded me and correct me if I'm wrong, your narrative started with orthorexia and then switched into anorexia, like couldn't be more common. And I apologize. I'm not saying you're a common person, Jennifer, but can you explain to listeners what orthorexia is how it morphs into anorexia, and what that was like for you. Absolutely. So orthorexia is kind of seen as a bit of a crossover between OCD and eating disorders. However, you and I know there's a lot of crossover in comorbidity in general. Um, Orthorexia is an unhealthy obsession with so-called, and I put in big air quotes, healthy eating. So I have a temperament where, which is not change where I become interested in something and I give my all to it. And it has changed in the sense of I have more wide range of hobbies, things like that, but I've always been the type of person who gets into something and throws my everything into it. So, you know, there was a lot of things going on in my life, which I don't have to get into all the underlying things that were going on. I gained some weight And when I was in high school, drinking and whatnot, and I decided when I was in college that I wanted to lose weight in the quote unquote healthy way. So I didn't intend to starve myself or do anything that I viewed as disordered. I thought I was being super healthy. So I was at one point afraid of white carbohydrates, right? Like I had decided all of these things were quote unquote healthy and I was just being super healthy 
but the reality was it became more and more restrictive over time, which eventually the fears got bigger and bigger, and that's how it kind of morphed into anorexia. So for some reason, I don't know why, orthorexia is not in the DSM, which is what we use to diagnose eating disorders. I really think it should be, but I think there's a lot of people, myself at the time included, who get into this under the guise of being healthy. And then just like any other eating disorder, it morphs and takes control over your life. And it's a way to deal with anxiety, to feel in control of things, to cope with emotions. Um, And I think it's something that, in my opinion, should be in the DSM because I think it's becoming more and more prevalent, especially in today's culture. Absolutely. Especially with, you know, everything is is now labeled wellness. It's a wellness package and it's wellness this. And even Weight Watchers is a wellness. Like there it's it's trying to be sold as this whole clean, healthy lifestyle. And they're they're selling you this idea that eating organic and and anything but organic and people get really caught up in it. I know myself, you know, for me, part of my eating disorder, I had incredible like low self-esteem and I had anxiety and, you know, I didn't feel like I fit in. Like I could go on for hours about all the other things that went into it. And I remember having a friend who, by the way, totally healthy relationship with food. Her family had a healthy relationship with food, but they did everything very much like from the earth. Like, you know, they got, you know, the organic carrots and they got all these organic things. And by the way, to them, it was because there was a farm stand right down the road. To me, I was like, this looks like a nice lifestyle. This looks pretty. The family looks good. Do it. Like I had all these misconceptions about even what a meal plan, how it made me look. They appeared happier to me, which is so not true. But when you're in the mind of an eating disorder, you can take something as small as a carrot from a farm stand and say, that's the life I want. I don't know if I just rambled that too much. I'm so sorry. Any thoughts? No, you're fine. That was, yeah, exactly what you're talking about with the carrot and the lifestyle. That was totally my experience. I loved going to farmer's markets and just hoarding vegetables, right? Which is so sad when you think about it now and all the delicious baked goods that they have at farmer's markets, but it became a sense of identity, right? And I felt, to be honest, I felt morally superior in the beginning. And I was, that's something that's distinctive often about orthorexia and anorexia often is that I was not ashamed of how I was eating. I thought I was being great and healthy. So I was posting pictures on Facebook of my workouts of what I was eating. Whereas more commonly people with anorexia are more ashamed, embarrassed, don't want to share what they're eating. I was kind of promoting it out there under this guise of health and wellness. It's, it's powerful. It is really powerful. The, you know, and that also, and I'm sure you hear this quite a bit when clients say, it's my identity. I can't give it up. It's who I am. And I say, no, it's not. It's it's a part of you who has become this way. You were not born with an eating disorder. Do you feel like you get that a lot with clients saying, I don't know what else I'd be without it? Yeah, no, I definitely get that all the time, especially for folks who've had it since childhood. But I think it can even happen for people like you and I who developed it, you know, what's considered to be later compared to other folks. So yeah, it really becomes a life of its own. And this idea of my eating disorder is what makes me special and unique. And I always challenge that and say, when you're in an eating disorder, it starts to strip you of your unique qualities and personality to where thoughts and things that you're saying start to sound very similar to a lot of other people with eating disorders. So actually it's masking those traits that are really you that actually make you so special and unique. I used to also say to the clients when I was working at residential and we'd be running, I'd be running group and there's, you know, 10 of them sitting and they're like, but it makes me feel really unique. And I was like, so you're in a room of 10 others right now 
like you. And by the way, not all the same eating disorder, but still using an eating disorder to navigate through life. And I would say to them, there's like thousands of other people across the country right now sitting in a similar group. This is not, this does not make you unique. I thought it made me unique. You know what? It was only to me. Nobody really cared. Nobody else cared. So it's the farthest thing from, from being unique. It's actually incredibly common. So do you talk about these things in your book that's coming out in April? Do you talk about the myths? Do you talk about how there is nothing unique about having an eating disorder? What breaks my heart is being authentic and genuine is actually sometimes seen as more unique. And that's a sad statement. I say it with, with a heavy heart. But is, are these some of the things you talk about in your book? Yeah, we absolutely talk about this in the book. And we also have a section talking about this idea of sick enough as well and challenging a lot of these beliefs around, you know, weight and other factors that people sometimes think mean that they're not sick enough. So we go into a lot of the eating disorder myths and misconceptions, including that one. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting because now I'm thinking about this. When when I I had anorexia about 30 years ago. And I don't feel, by the way, there were probably people all around me with eating disorders. So I don't know if I just didn't know because they were better at hiding it, or if I was just so at that time self-absorbed because of my eating disorder. I didn't, I didn't know of anyone else that had it. And so I did feel unique and superior, which was a dangerous place for me to be in because I never felt like there was anything unique about me before. It's it's a dangerous, go ahead, what were you gonna say? Well, I was thinking about how you had mentioned previously, and I know we both didn't get too much into what are a lot of common underlying factors, but I think low self-esteem, certainly trauma are a few of them and one that you mentioned. And I think similar to when we think about, um, and this is kind of a strange analogy, but like an abusive partner or someone who's grooming somebody, they, they're going to pick people who are more vulnerable, right? And I think people who are more vulnerable to eating disorders obviously have often genetic predispositions and other factors. But I think one vulnerability factor is also that low sense of self-worth. And like you said, the eating disorder gives them that feeling. It fills that function, that need um, temporarily often to feel special, to feel unique, but it really is a facade, like we said, because the deeper someone is in their eating disorder, and we've all seen it, the more similar to other people with eating disorders they start to sound. So it's it's completely a false sense of uniqueness, but it's very cunning and sneaky. Yeah. And then there's also that idea of, and again, regardless of the behaviors, because by the way, all of them are potentially deadly. There's that idea of, hmm, it'll happen to others, but it'll never happen to me. What is it like for you working with a population? Excuse me, I, I couldn't say the word population, everybody. What is it like for you working with a population with a high mortality rate? I think, you know, working with people with eating disorders, that is something that certainly I keep in mind and recommend that people go to their doctor, of course, if they're experiencing any concerning symptoms. I think I'm very comfortable working with, clearly, obvious statement of the day, I'm very comfortable working with people with eating disorders, as well as people struggling with suicidality, which of course are both high-risk groups. And I think that you know, it's a scary reality that eating disorders are so deadly right under opioid abuse. I think they're the now the second deadliest mental illness. And, you know, I just hope and um, yeah, just really hope that nothing ever happens, knock on wood so far. You know, I've never lost a client and I hope to never have that experience, but it's, it's a reality that we have to face as clinicians in the field. I think it's a reality. And I think that, um, and, and something that I want to remind myself for future talks is I don't think people really understand how prevalent suicide is 
with eating disorders. The level of hopelessness, the level of depression, the level of isolation that people go through and suicide is a lot more common than people think. Absolutely. It's, it's very common. And that's something that I grappled with pretty intensely at times, like throughout my struggle with the eating disorder and PTSD. And so I have a lot of compassion for people. And I think that in my mind, you know, for people who ruminate about suicide or think about it, often it's another coping strategy similar to the eating disorder where I know for myself in the past, it provided that momentary relief when life felt so painful. It's like, if only I could not be here and thank goodness, I didn't listen to that voice in my head. And I got professional help from people who could work with me and, you know, give me, do safety plans with me and have me reach out to them. If I felt like, you know, I needed support in the moment because I would have missed out on so much. And I just want to remind people of that, that when you're in it, it feels like it's going to be your forever and it's never going to get better but there ultimately is another side, you know, that many people can't see when you're in the depths of depression. If you were going to reflect back on your experience, do you know what was the most difficult part of your recovery? Was it working through suicidal ideation? Was it the behaviors? I mean, it's different for everybody, Jennifer. So I think two things that were probably the most difficult. Um, the first one, since we brought up the topic, would be like the intense suicidality and just level of despair that came alongside that. Like I said, I had experienced, you know, some really mild um, depressive moments before, but that was the first time like dealing with both the eating disorder and the depression that I felt really disabled by my mental illness. So that was very exhausting, just like, existing in the world sometimes. And then specific to the eating disorder, even though again, the suicidality was very tied to the eating disorder. Um, but in terms of eating disorder behaviors, I think compulsive exercise, honestly, was probably one of the harder pieces for me to let go of. It is, it is very difficult. I remember sitting in, where was I? I can't remember where I was, but I remember thinking, oh, I was, I was downtown Boston and I was looking at people and I could tell, you, you know, you can tell when people are like just running out from work, getting, doing an errand or getting lunch or whatnot. And I thought, I will never be able to carry or hold a full-time job because I have to get my exercise in every day. And as a result, I was willing to sacrifice a lifetime career, which at that point I didn't know what it was going to be, but I, and I couldn't understand how people fit it in their day with work. Yeah, I can very much relate to that just in the sense of, I used to do things like wake up at 4am to make sure that I could, which is crazy to me now, um, to make sure I could fit it in and sacrifice things like vacations because I was afraid of not being near a gym. So I can very much relate to and understand that compulsive desire to exercise and the fear around not doing it. Yeah, yeah. I didn't have the drive though to wake up at four in the morning, which by the way is unusual. Your your situation is more usual. I've I've worked with clients who are like, yeah, I get up at two in the morning or I get up at four in the morning and da da da. And I'm like, well, thank God. That was one place <laughs> my body did not allow me to go. <laughs> could not do that. I could not do that. So let me ask you another question. So, you know, we're talking all about, you know, your eating disorder, meaning the recovery part, some of the things that were challenging. I, I barely ever asked this question. What is something about you that you know about yourself now as a recovered person that people might be surprised to know about you? People might know this about me, but I don't know if I talk about it a ton. So I'll just throw this out there. First thing that popped into my head. I think that I feel things very deeply. I don't know how familiar you are with Glennon Doyle Milton. She's written a lot of books and most people are familiar with her. She talks about being a deep feeler, feeling things very deeply. And that is something I really resonate with where I feel emotions in a big way. Certainly when I was deep in different mental illnesses, it was way more intense. 
Um, you know, and my mood is at a very thankfully stable place now, but I, I guess I would describe myself as more on the sensitive side. So, you know, I might cry watching, you know, a sad movie, that kind of thing. I think I'm a deep feeler and very kind of empathetic. That part is probably not a surprise to people though. (laughs) Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. Although I think people know I'm a deep feeler. It's funny. I'm trying to think if that question was asked to me, what I would say, I'd have to think about that. Maybe in my next episode, I'll come up with something. I'm like you, I'm pretty much an open book. And I used to hide everything when I was in my eating disorder. Not only did I hide things that I thought were like flaws or parts of me that I didn't want anyone to see. I was embarrassed if I felt anything positive about myself. I was like, oh God, what are people going to think of me if I actually like a part of myself? So I wouldn't share anything with anyone. Now, like I said, people are like, please stop talking, Karen. We've heard enough about you. Maybe you should get on social media too, but I can totally relate to that because um, I value being a real and authentic person, um, again, like within appropriate ethical boundaries. But yeah, I think a lot of people who follow me on social media know quite a fair amount about my life. Um, so yeah, certainly I, I'm willing to, to go there and to not be secretive similar to you how I used to be. Yeah. I'm not intimidated with people knowing things about my life. I just get intimidated by the concept of social media because I just don't get it. Like my producer is always like, you know, we've got to get a bigger presence on social media. And I'm like, I don't even understand it. So anyway, that's a whole nother story that that's for a whole nother time. But, you know, I wonder though, if it is overwhelming for you to be such a big social media presence. I think for the most part, to be honest, I forget that I have followers on social media. And often, of course, I never post anything like my barometer is if a client and their parents and like my grandparents were all sitting here, like, would I feel comfortable with them knowing that? Maybe I wouldn't want to like talk directly to my grandma about this, but am I okay with her knowing that? And so I am cognizant of that. But to be honest with you, I think most of the time it just feels like, hey, I'm like talking to my friends. Like I'm not thinking so much about other people seeing it. So it's always really more of a surprise to me um, when other people are like, oh, I heard about that. And I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot I shared that on social media. Um, So yeah, it's not not too overwhelming to me because I think I just view it as like kind of a safe place for the most part to just share, share things and talk to people. I appreciate though that you do have a large social media presence and you also take your responsibility very seriously. Like when you and I were talking before we started recording and you said there are certain things about my eating disorder I don't want to talk about because I don't want it to be triggering. I don't want clients to compare. Jennifer, that is invaluable. Somebody who's on social media and does it responsibly because this is a really vulnerable subject. And so I'm just saying as someone on the other side, how much I appreciate that you you understand that you do have a responsibility to not only share information, but protect people from information that could damage where they're at at this current moment, their psyche. Yeah. And that means a lot to me. I try to, again, be authentic, be an open book. And of course, different things trigger different people. So we can't totally stay away from that. However, certain things like length of illness, how long did it take you to recover? You know, of course, weight, you know, specific food behaviors. Um, So yeah, I share just enough to help people not feel alone and, you know, maybe little vignettes about my experience, but I don't want to do things like share what I ate in a day, like watch every single thing I eat for a week, just things that are really unnecessary for people with eating disorders that trigger that comparison, which we know is harmful. Yeah. Well, again, I appreciate that you do it because not everybody does and and social media is huge. So I just, I just want to say thank you because my clients follow you. So that I do know. So I just, again, I want to say thank you. 
Jennifer, we are about to wind this up. As always, I have a final question, but before I ask it, is there anything that you want to share that I didn't ask you that you just wanted listeners to know about? I think the thing that I always say to this question, because it's so important, is just encouraging people to reach out for help. I think most people who reach out, including my past self, even though I was was pretty quick to reach out, say that they wish they'd reached out sooner. And I know with eating disorders, there's so much of this not sick enough struggle, which is something that I dealt with um, myself many times throughout my illness. So just really encouraging people to seek professional help because I don't want people to have to suffer for longer than they necessarily have to. And while recovering by yourself is not impossible, I think if you have access to and the means to get a therapist, a dietitian, they can be a really invaluable source of of healing and support on your recovery journey. Well said. I agree 100%. So... All right, Jennifer, before we end, I have to ask my final question, which for you is, if someone were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? Yeah, so I think that maybe the inspirational, serious side of me would say, you know, something like she was determined, never gave up, and really enjoyed proving people wrong about what she was capable of. The snarky side of me would say the writing would be something like, you know, diet culture disruptor goes around putting sticky notes on diet culture signs. I love it. I want to make a collage of all the sticky notes to put on all these, all these diet signs. So Jennifer, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It was really, really fun. Great. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. And like I said, you know, my, my clients knew that you were coming on today. So a lot of them are very excited. So I'm excited for this to come out for them. They're like, Jennifer Roland. Oh my goodness. So I'm excited. I'm glad to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk, with recovered professionals. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. To wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www dot karen lewis edc.com forward slash podcast you can subscribe to future shows by searching recovery bites on apple podcast spotify and google podcast all right everybody be well and thanks for listening to my bite for the week <laughs>